bless this time. Father, um, this passage that we're going through, um, really, uh, your, your word is, is powerful, it's living, it's active. And this passage that we're going to be going through, um, in regards to uh, husbands and wives, a relationship, Lord, it, it has uh, the ability to impact marriages today uh, for the good. And so um, I know the enemy does not want that to happen. And so I would not be surprised if my microphone kills out or a windstorm comes in and howls out the power. Lord, this word will be proclaimed. And I want to make sure, Lord, that I'm saying it faithfully and so presenting it faithfully. And so I ask that your Holy Spirit would guide me and direct my words that, uh, uh, Lord, I wouldn't get off onto uh, tangents and rabbit trails that would be unhelpful, but that uh, just let your word speak for itself and let your Holy Spirit do what it does best and taking your word and applying it to our lives. Not just head knowledge, Lord, but something that we can apply to our lives, to our marriages, to make them the marriages that you intended them to be. And what they ultimately reflect. And so um, this is very humbling, Lord, to be able to go through this. And so help. <laughs> help us. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and turn to Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5. Our focus... Uh, this morning is going to be on verses 22 and 33. So I said it's going to be where Paul's going to be talking about the relationship between husbands and wives. But what Paul's doing here, he's not simply beginning another separate uh, section in the letter. What he's doing, he's actually continuing his discussion that he be, he. Uh, began all the way back in uh, chapter 4, verse 1, when Paul says, walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. In other words, live your life in such a way that it's fitting, that's appropriate to who you already are. Well, who are we? If we are, in Christ, if we are followers of Jesus, we are in Christ. And Paul hammers that out for the first three chapters, just the believer's identity in Christ and the significance of what that actually means. And in chapter 4, he's transitioning to, now you've heard the instruction, here's the application. Live it out. And in chapter 5, uh, verse 1, he says this in another way. He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Again, it's not imitate God so that you will become a dearly loved child. No, you already are a dearly loved child. You are in Christ. You're part of his household. God is, is um, our, our, our heavenly father. And so imitate him. Imitate him. And what, what does that look? And last week we, we examined uh, verses 15 to 21 where Paul says, walk as wise, not as unwise. In other words, walk in wisdom. And the specific, it's, it, Paul, when, when Paul says walk in wisdom, he's not saying walk in worldly wisdom. He says walk in godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is focused on God, focused on the truth of who he is and found in his word. Worldly wisdom is the exact opposite. While worldly wisdom may have some similarities with godly wisdom, it's not focused on God. It's focused on man. It's focused on mankind's, um, you know, own intellect, our, our own superiority aside from God. And, and, and what Paul says is that foolishness, foolishness of the world, I mean, no, wisdom of the world is actually foolishness. It's really foolishness. And so Paul says, don't walk as unwise, but walk as wise. Walk in godly wisdom. Then he says, make the best use of the opportunity that God has given you. Remember this is, again, this is a review. We've just, we talked about this last week. Make the best use of the opportunity that God has given you. Why? Because the days are evil. You know, our life is very short. It's, it's here and then it's gone. The opportunities that we have may not be there again tomorrow or the next week or even a year from now. We talked about, you know, you, you have the opportunity right now to open up God's word anytime. Every single day you have access to God's word, whether that's on your phone, uh, all the different Bibles. You got Bibles back there that you keep, got Bibles over there. I mean, we're, we're not lacking Bibles. You have the opportunity to read the Bible freely. 
make the most of that opportunity. You have the opportunity to come together here as a church body and worship the Lord. You make the best use of this opportunity because you don't know how long it's going to last. You don't know how long you may physically be able to be a part of this. Make the most of this opportunity. When it comes to discipling others and pouring into other individuals, mentoring others, or maybe even proclaiming the gospel to family, friends, and co-workers, that's an amazing opportunity that God wants you to take advantage of. Because again, it may not be there. Take, make the most use of the opportunity that God has given you. Don't, don't waste your life. That's walking unwisely. Walk wisely. And then he, he goes to verse 18. And Paul says, and do not get drunk with wine. Literally, don't be like a sponge and soaked up with wine. Don't be inebriated with wine. Don't be influenced by wine. Now, if you've ever done a a study regarding alcohol in the first century, yeah, it was a bit different, but still people got plastered by it, okay? It was not like the alcohol we have now, but still people got um, under the influence, it says, don't, don't, don't be under the influence of, of wine, for that is dissipation. Basically, it's, it's a reckless waste. You know, it, it, alcohol is a numbing agent. It, it, it just numbs you, you of, of reality. It, it, you, you do things you would never do. You say things that you would never say. You live a life that is, what Paul would say, unwise. So don't do that. That's a waste of the opportunity that God has given you. Instead, he says, but be filled with the Spirit. But be filled with the Spirit. Now, be filled is, again, this is all review. I understand that. Uh, Be filled is a present passive imperative. Oh, isn't that good? Ooh, what does that mean? Present tense means it's not something that's just supposed to happen once. It's to be continuous. Continually be filled. It's an imperative, which it's a command, so it's not a suggestion. As Christians, we are to be continually filled. Passive, which means it's not something we can do. We can't just get the Holy Spirit and dump it into us. But we are to instead allow ourselves to be continually filled with the Spirit. Instead of allowing alcohol influence our lives, or whatever to influence our life, allow the Holy Spirit to influence our lives more and more and more. And now Paul's going to go into what these five verbs... Uh, that, 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 that we call them participles. Again, participle uh, is a verb that is kind of insecure. It doesn't like standing on its own. It likes to lean up against a, a strong verb, a, a main verb. And that main verb is the command to be filled. Continually allow yourself to be filled. And so what these participles are, are trying to do is that they're describing not only the results of one who is allowing themselves to be filled with the Spirit, but also the means by which we can be filled with the Spirit. And so he says here, speaking to, verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord. When brothers and sisters come together in Christ and and they sing and they worship with all their hearts, those are individuals that are allowing the Holy Spirit to fill them. Then he says here, uh, verse 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. When you see brothers and sisters living their life and they're not, you know, they may complain occasionally, but they're not complainers. You know, they, 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 they are thankful. They live a life of thanksgiving. They're always finding something to be thankful for. Whatever situation they may encounter, they know there's something to thank. And they're finding it through God's truth, God's promises. Oh, thank you for this. Thank you, thank you, thank you. You just see them, they're they're just thankful. Those individuals are allowing the Holy Spirit to fill them. And finally, in verse 21, he says, being subject or submitting to one another in the fear of Christ. As brothers and sisters submit to each other, what, what they're doing is they're not living for themselves, they're living for one another. And when you see individuals doing that, when you see a church living that way, that's a church that's allowing the Holy Spirit to fill them. And the more and more the Holy Spirit's filling them, the more and more that's going to happen. They're going to worship. They're going to be thankful. They're going to submit. And it's this idea of submit that Paul's now going to expand on. He's going to now bring up uh, different relationships, three relationships uh, that would typically um, comprise a first century household. 
In a first century household, you would have husbands and wives. That's a relationship. You would have parents with their children. And you would also have slaves with, your mas- with their masters. And you know, in the ancient world, that's like those were the three primary um, relationships of society. And, and so Paul's going to go ahead and, and, and focus on, on each of those. So this morning we're going to focus on the relationship between husbands and wives because this mutual submission looks a bit different when it comes to um, relationships with husbands and wives. How does, it, how does it look like for wives submitting to husbands, husbands submitting to their wives? How does that work? The, the, in the first century, um, Greek and Roman thought the, the family was really important. Family was really important. They recognized that strong societies, strong empires were built by strong households. And so they really emphasized this is how a a family is supposed to be run. This is how uh, the man is supposed to manage. This is what the woman is supposed to do. This is what the children are supposed to do. Slaves, masters. They had this, basically these um, uh, household codes that they would uh, follow. They, they, were, uh, they were unofficial. I mean, they kind of just by word of mouth, this is a wise way to run your household. This is a wise way to run your household. And, and some scholars would actually say that what Paul's bringing up in this passage, verses 22 to 33, is Paul's basically reiterating these household codes, but he's just throwing a Christian twist on it. But the truth is, what Paul's teaching here, and really, it's really God uh, teaching to us, um, is, is completely countercultural. was completely countercultural in the first century. Just to give you an example, and I do apologize, I didn't put these quotes on the slides, but I'll just go ahead and read them. I think you guys are good listeners anyways. But there was a, an ancient uh, Greek statesman and orator by the name of Demosthenes. So, that's an interesting name. Parents, like, what do I name my kid? Demosthenes. There we go. Actually, probably not because this guy wasn't really good. But this was his idea in regards to society. He says, we have Cartesians. That was just a nice way of saying prostitutes. We have prostitutes for the sake of pleasure. We have concubines for the sake of daily cohabitation. We have wives for the purpose of having children legitimately and of having a faithful guardian for all our household affairs. An ancient Greek historian by the name of Xenophon, that's another interesting name there, Xenophon, said it was the husband's aim that a wife might see as little as possible, hear as little as possible, and ask as little as possible. (laughs) Go further before Xenophon to the philosopher Socrates, He said, is there anyone to whom you entrust more serious matters than to your wife? And is there anyone to whom you talk less? (laughs) I hope you're getting the idea that in the first century, wives were considered an important part of the household. They had a role to play, but as a person, they weren't really treated well. Some would actually refer to them almost like a, a slave to a master, like they were just property. All the women were to do was just to put up and shut up, you know, do what they were told, and everything, make sure everything was running okay. You know, as, as long as they're producing legitimate heirs to the family line, as long as they're handling the, the affairs of the, of, the, of the household correctly, then everything should be okay. But reality is marriage wasn't really a significant thing. It was pretty much meaningless, Men just did whatever they wanted to do. You know, the women had to do what they had to do, but men, I mean, they could go out gallivanting. They'd go to the, the temples and fraternize with the temple prostitutes. You know, they'd have a little something on the side, and it, it, that was a normal thing. It was a normal thing for the wives to just say, yeah, that's what my husband's going to do. Yeah, my husband's gone. He probably won't be back till tomorrow. You know, I was just thinking, like, that's kind of a weird, yucky society right there. What's also interesting is not only was this running rampant, adultery running rampant, and marriage really uh, not meaningful, but meaningless, but also during this time, a form of feminism was just starting to bud. It was the idea, and some modern scholars would say it was like women, you know, first century women's liberation movement. And it was basically... Uh, women started taking more prominent roles uh, in temples. You know, you had temple priests, priestesses, and um, by the time, uh, years after Paul's execution, uh, and close to more toward the second century, uh, women were actually holding top uh, leadership roles in uh, religious circles. 
and uh, the, the, the idea was if, if men could have a little something on the side, then women could do the same thing too. And they would actually encourage some of the women, uh, the Greek women, to remove their veils, which was a symbol of, you know, that they're married to someone. They said, just remove it. You're free. Do whatever you want. So it's just interesting how this was starting to bud even during Paul's time. And so what Paul has to say here, well, before I jump, even with the, it wasn't even better with the Jewish population. Because you had a liberal sect of Jewish population who followed a, a rabbi by the name of Hillel that said it was okay to divorce your wife if she just put too much salt in the stew. Or uh, if, she, if she's no longer attractive. Just go ahead and divorce her. So it's just like, wow. It's really not good. So what, what Paul's doing, what God is saying here in this section, um, was really countercultural in the first century. It was really countercultural in the first century. And guess what? It's the same even for today. What Paul has to say to us here in this section is completely countercultural. Modern ears will hear this passage and they'll say, This is really controversial. Some would actually say, This is downright offensive, especially in regards to two ideas submission and headship. And that's exactly what we're going to start right off the bat. So, if you have your Bibles, we're here at um, Ephesians chapter 5, looking at verses 22 to, 20, to, to, to 33. The first section, I have, I think, the notes. Oh, maybe I don't have the notes. I forgot to give them to Mark. It's okay. Oh, well. We're going to be talking about submission and headship here in verses 22 to 24. Paul says, Wives, be subject to your husbands, as to the Lord. Now that's right, right off the bat, controversial. How dare you? You know, that's 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 not freedom, that's oppressive. That's you know, you're you're demeaning womanhood. How dare you, you chauvinist pigs. Notice observation here. It doesn't say women are to subject themselves to every man. Notice that. Some people will actually say, well, that's what's wrong with Christianity. They just tell, say that every woman has to submit to a man. No, thank God, that's not what it says. Because I'm sorry, I have daughters. I don't want them being submissive to all the men in this world. What, he's, what here Paul's focusing in on is the submission of wives to their own husbands. Now, in, in the new... In the, uh, NESB, the New American Standard uh, Version, uh, be subject is in italics. And the reason why it's in italics is because in the Greek, that, that, those words are not actually there in the original Greek. It's actually uh, from the translation. It's actually uh, from uh, verse 21 where Paul's saying, submitting to one another of the fear of Christ. And it's the, you know, the, this is basically Paul's expanding on this idea of what that looks like in the relationship between husbands and wife. And then later on next week, we're going to look at parents and, and, and children and slaves and, and, and their masters. But even when we look at verse 21, when it says being subject or submissive to one another, fear of the Lord, he, again, it's, it's, it's a participle, which means it's describing not only the results of one who's being filled with the Spirit, but also the means by which one can be filled with the Spirit. And so what Paul's saying here in verse 22 is that Spirit-filled wives submit to the leadership of their husbands. That's what he's saying. Because he says, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Spirit-filled wives, wives who are allowing the Holy Spirit to have more influence in their lives, submit to the leadership of their husbands. Wives submit to their husbands because it is the duty, it is their duty to Christ. It is their duty. Submission has nothing to do with insignificance. It has nothing to do with, you know, who's superior and who's not superior. Submission, the word itself, uh, hupotasso, it's just, it's just a military term that says a range and a rank. So just like uh, a military has different uh, levels of authority and those, you know, there's submission going on in order for that unit or that army to function correctly, the same thing in, in, a, in a marriage. 
that we're submitting to one another, but wives are to submit to the leadership of their husbands. As to the Lord, it is their duty to Christ. Even though husbands and wives are made in the image of God, both are equal in value and significance and worth, we don't have the same roles. Husbands have one role to play, wives have another role to play. And this is their duty to Christ. Wives who submit to their husbands are by extension submitting to Christ. If you think of it that way. That's what Paul's saying. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Submission is really an obedience issue with God. Again, it's not about inferiority or who's superior. It's an obedience issue with God. This has nothing to do of whether or not your husband is qualified to lead. Whether your husband is a gifted leader or has a good high, a high IQ. It has everything to do with obedience. Which really should be a warning to single women who are looking out getting into a relationship with a, with a man to, 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 to get married. You really, these, these single ladies need to be asking themselves, is this someone... I am willing to submit to. Is this someone that I'm willing to submit to financially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, and everything? Is this someone I could? Because as soon as you say I do, that is your role to play. Your wife. And you're to be subject to your husbands as to the Lord. So this is not only a warning to single women, but also a warning to, to the single men. When they're looking at for, for uh, who they want to marry, you got to think, okay, is this woman a woman who loves Jesus with everything? Is this a woman who I can definitely see submits to Christ? Because if I see her, she's submitting to Christ, I know this is not going to be that hard of an issue. She will submit to the authority. Again, submission of the wife has everything to do with God. It has nothing to do with the woman being inferior to the man. It's obedience. Next, in, in, in verse 23, uh, Paul is going to show the husband's leadership role and the basis for this role. Verse 23, Paul says, For the husband is the head of the wife. Notice, it doesn't say the husband, after going through vigorous studies in finances and administration, and after receiving letters of recommendation from prestigious psychologists, and after receiving a degree in psychology, only then can he assume the role of head of his wife. It doesn't say that, does it? What does it say? For the husband is the head of the wife. Want to be more literal to the grammar? The husband exists as head of the wife. This is who the husband is. This, this role was not given to him by the preacher who officiated the wedding. It wasn't bestowed upon him by his parents. It wasn't just given, you know, attached to him because it's a traditional thing. No, this is a God thing. God is the one who made the husband the head of the wife. So as soon as a man gets married, he's a husband. Guess what? He's also now the head. He doesn't work his way up to that headship. He doesn't try to deserve or earn that headship. He's already head. He says, for, for the husband is the head of the wife, and here's the comparison, as Christ also is the head of the church, himself, he himself being the savior of the body. This is pretty significant right here. <laughs> if you're really just thinking about it. As Christ also is the head of the church, husbands are the head of the wife. Husbands, you're the head of the wife. Why? Because Christ is also the head of the church. But there's a difference here. I mean, husbands aren't the saviors of their wives. That belongs only to Jesus. But, as Christ's salvation is a blessing to all of mankind who receive that gift of salvation, husbands are to be a blessing to their wives as they assume this role. So this, this is the thing that, that Paul's going to be developing even further, is that marriage is more about God and his glory than our happiness. That's what he's saying. 
Marriage is, is more about God and his glory than our happiness because marriage is a picture of God's relationship with his church. And he's going to develop this even, even more. But that right there should change how we behave in our marriages. That should change how we understand marriage, how we live husbands with our wives and wives with our husbands. As a husband, I have to ask myself, are my actions reflecting God's forgiveness? Are my actions reflecting God's patience and love? Am I honoring God through my actions and behaviors? Why? Because I'm the head just as Christ is the head of the body. Then he moves on to uh, verse uh, 24. He says, but, and this again in contrast, the husbands are not the saviors of their wives, only Christ is. He says, but as the church is subject to Christ, so also the wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. So here Paul is talking about spirit-filled wives follow the pattern of Christ or the church to Christ. As the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their husbands in everything. Paul is writing this letter to a church in the city of Ephesus. And um, in this church, there were uh, believers, uh, Christian women, who may have had husbands who were not believers, or husbands who were still struggling with sin. They were doing what Paul mentioned earlier in his letter. They weren't removing the old self. They were... You know, they weren't putting on the, the new. They were not embracing, fully embracing their identity. And so it's like, okay, well, wait a minute. How does this work? Wives ought to submit to their husbands and everything. Okay, what's the condition? Where are the footnotes here? And by the way, just a little word of warning. If you're always looking for a way out of obeying God's word, you're always going to find one. But it may not be a biblical one. If you're always looking for reasons to not obey God's word fully, you're going to find it, but it may not be a biblical reason. So what about husbands who are sinning? Well, wives, if your, your husband's sin is not an excuse, is not a license to not submit to him. Oh, you're sinning. That means I don't have to submit to you anymore. That's not what it's saying there at all. I mean, Paul, Paul did bring this up earlier in his letter that if, 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 if members of the body, if members of the church are sinning, that we need to address it. We need to address it. Don't just let it happen. Don't, don't ignore it. You, you need to address it. But as Paul says in Galatians 6, we do, we do so with a spirit of gentleness. So wives, if your husband is sinning, that's not an excuse not to submit to him, but to help him. To bring up the fact that, you know, it, his, you're sinning. But you do so with, in gentleness. You do so with respect. Your, 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 your goal is not to just whip them and bash them and say, you horrible person. You, I can't believe you're my, my husband. I should never have married you. you no, know, you're not to hurt them. You want to help them. You want to pray for them. Encourage them. And then, then you go think of the, the situation that some of these uh, Christian uh, wives had with husbands who are non-believers. The, 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 the husbands would want to go, hey, honey, let's get the family together. We're going to go to the, the temple of Artemis and we're going to worship the gods there. And it's like, well, what do I do? Well, Paul says wives are to submit to their own husbands as to the Lord. That ultimately, wives devote... The devotion of, of, their, of, of wives is not to be ultimately on their husbands. It's to be on Jesus. And, and so, if the husband is asking the wife to do something that's dishonoring to God, that's disobeying, that's sin, well then the wife has to appeal to a higher authority. And she can't do that. But again, how's her attitude? Gentleness, respect. Paul's going to bring that up even at the end of this section. For, uh, uh, Peter says in, in, in 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 1 to 2, that even husbands who are not being uh, obedient to God's word will be won over 
by how their wives conduct themselves. And I, I saw this personally. There was a, a woman, a couple, and the woman uh, uh, came to Christ. And the husband, uh, for a while, just had so much animosity toward his wife. Because he said, and he told me, my wife loves Jesus more than she loves me. But then that got him thinking. Because he saw how she behaved. She still submitted to him. Even when he was foolish and he made stupid decisions that affected their family. She still was submissive to him. She's like, you know what? Maybe this Jesus is pretty significant. And he started just investigating. He picked up his wife's Bible, started reading it. The same passages that his wife highlighted, he was reading. Oh, wow, this is who this... And he ended up surrendering his life to Christ because of that. Now, Paul never says this is, this is easy. Wives, this is not easy. Submitting to the authority of your husband as head over you is not easy. When the husband is fulfilling his role, yes, then it's, it's a little bit easier. There's a little bit more, you know, joy in it. But sometimes it's not. It's very, very hard. What do I do? My husband's just being foolish. He's making a dumb decision. I'm a little bit more smarter than my husband when it comes to finances. And, you know, and, well, why don't you help him respectfully? But he's still the head. What do you do? Now, I understand, you know, some people say, well, in those situations, what happens when, you know, um, the husband's actions are, are, are uh, causing, you know, the physical damage, like physical harm, like a physical abuse that is dangerous to not only the wife and to the kids. Well, you know, again, those are not grounds for divorce, but wisdom may say, you know what, it's, it's not good to, you know, to be in that environment, to call the police, especially if he's being violent. But where's your attitude? Where's your heart? Again, that's, that's basically what's, what Paul's getting at. Where's your heart? Are you being smug and meh? I told you so. Because I, I, I don't know, <laughs> I've heard this before. Whenever, and we're going to get to the men. Don't worry, we're going to get to the men. But a lot of times, when you, know, you have sermons like this about women and men relationships, sometimes the spouse would do this to the other spouse. Bonk. Like, did, did you hear that? Did, did you hear that? <laughs> it's like, yes, they heard it. You know, they don't need you jabbing them in the ribs. They heard it. Let the Holy Spirit work on them. You submit to them. You submit to them. Again, it's not because that husband is, is worthy to follow. It's an act of obedience. It is their duty, your duty to Christ to do so. Now, Paul gets to the men. Verses 25 to 27, the commands to husbands to love their wives. Now, before the men say, yes, Paul has put those ladies in their place. Now, Paul's going to put the men in their place. <laughs> okay? In fact, if you were to just simply count the words that Paul uses in the Greek directed toward the women, it's about like 70. Okay? That he's directing toward the women in this passage. It's over 140 directed toward the men. Okay? So it's even more so with, that, with the men here. Okay? So, the first thing we're going to see, verse 25, is a spirit-filled husband's pattern of love is found in Christ. Verse 25, it says, Husbands, love your wives. It's a present tense. It's not just love your wives on your anniversaries, love your wives on, your birth on our birthdays, and only on Mother's Day. No. Continually love your wives. And, and the word here for love is not eros. It's not this physical intimacy kind of love. It's not phileo. It's not this friendship kind of love. It's agape. It's this sacrificial devotion. That husbands are to be sacrificially devoted to their wives. Continuously. Look at the comparison. Just as Christ also loved the church... What did he do? And gave himself up. Literally surrendered. Yielded himself up on behalf of her. 
Husbands are to love their wives, continuously love their wives, as Christ also loved the church. What Paul is commanding here to the men is impossible when you think about it. Because there is not one husband who will be able to perfectly love their wives. But it's still the standard that we are to faithfully pursue as husbands. We are to faithfully pursue that standard. So love our wives as Christ also loved the church. So what does this mean? Well, husbands, it means that our love must be realistic. It means that our love must be realistic. Did Christ die for perfect people? Did he die for perfect people? No. Uh-uh. No, he didn't. Is the church made up of perfect people? No. Husbands, did you marry perfect women? Now, I know what's going to happen. You're trying to get brownie points. Oh, honey, I married a perfect wife. But ladies, let's make it easier for the men, okay? Ladies, did you marry perfect men? No. Okay, so men, you could now, you've heard the truth. Now you can say the truth. Husbands, did you marry perfect women? No. But here's the thing. Their imperfection is not an excuse to not love them. Their imperfections are not an excuse to not love them. And see, many marriages suffer because of these unrealistic expectations that both put on each other. Like, oh, I want the perfect wife. I want the perfect husband. You know, husbands are like, I want, I want my wife to, to, to think the same way I think. To understand things the way I understand. To do things the way I do things. To, to, to prioritize things the way I prioritize things. And vice versa, the wife's saying the same thing. Except it's for her. I want her to think the way I, him to think the way I want. And do the things I want. Is that going to happen? No. No. Two different people, different backgrounds, different personalities, and completely imperfect. It's not going to work. But that unfortunately causes so much unnecessary conflict. So husbands, as we love our wives, we need to be realistic. We are loving imperfect individuals. And sometimes our wives who, if we were to go back and remember them on, our, on, on their wedding, on the wedding day, then walking down the aisle, we're probably like, oh, a picture of loveliness, right? I remember that's how it was with, with Brianna when she walked down. Just, she's lovely. But sometimes our wives don't behave lovely, you know? They're, amen, testify. The man cannot use it as an excuse to not love them. I mean, not to be crass, but I've heard so many men say, well, you know, it's my, my, my wife's time of the month. I'm just going to go ahead and go, on a, go out to a cabin by myself out in the woods. Is that loving your wife? No, it's like, my, life is, my wife is unlovable right now, so I'm not going to love her. It says so in Second Hesitations chapter 12. You know? No. We must have a realistic love for our wives. Our wives are not perfect. It also means that hus- the, 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 the husband's love is sacrificial. It says, love your wives as Christ lo- also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Jesus willingly surrendered his life for the church. Husbands, are you willing to surrender your life to, for your wife? Are you willing to surrender? Now, I'm not just talking about your willingness to die for your wife because I, I probably could assume that all the men would say, yeah, if, I, if there was a, a situation where I had to sacrifice myself in order for my wife to live, you know, women and children first, all right, the boat's going down. I'm going to save my wife and kids. I'll stay on the boat. I mean, in fact, ladies, men would say, that's the way to go. If you're going to go, go gloriously. That's glorious. To die, to lay your, your life down for your true love. That's amazing. That's not only what Paul's means here. It's not just, are you willing to die for your, for your wife, but are you willing to die to yourself? Are you willing to die to yourself? Because you see, when, when it comes to... A sacrifice, a simple definition of a sacrifice is giving up something, surrendering something that is important to you, that is significant to you. And sometimes husbands, in order to love our wives as Christ loved the church, 
We have to sacrifice our free time. But for some of us, we're really busy and we don't have a lot of free time. And that free time is our downtime. And oh man, it's like a cherished holy time. It's like we want to make it like the angels are singing. And it's like, oh, it's our, it's like that time I don't have to do anything. But sometimes we have to sacrifice that time to love our wives. Sometimes we have to sacrifice entertainment. Sometimes we have to sacrifice that trip that we were planning with our buddies in order to love our wives. Sometimes we have to even sacrifice our careers in order to love our wives. Christ gave himself up for her. And we are to follow in this same pattern. Husbands, love your wives as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Next he goes on to verses 26 or 27 where he brings up the purpose of Christ's love for his church. Look what he says. So Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her so that he might sanctify her. So that he might make her holy, purify her, consecrate her. This, this is an interesting word in, 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 in scripture. At sometimes it's used, and when it's used, it's uh, referring to something that's already happened. Like as soon as a believer comes to Christ, they're, they're sanctified. They've been set apart. They're, they're made holy. And in other sections of scripture, it's still a process that God's still working out in them through the power of the Holy Spirit. That they've been sanctified, but it's still a process of sanctification, of becoming more and more holy, more and more conformed to the image of Christ. That's the purpose why Jesus died, to to sanctify the church, having cleansed her, having washed her by the washing of water with the word. This kind of uh, goes back to like the the priests who would have to wash themselves to be ceremonially clean, to to stand before God and offer their, their sacrifices to God. We have been washed. All of our sins have been washed clean. We heard the word of the God, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We responded to that word. We were washed. We were sanctified. Verse 27, so that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, in all of her splendor having no spot, defect, or wrinkle, or flaw, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And the way he's, grammatically he says, holy and blameless, it's that she would continually exist as holy and blameless. That's the same kind of language that Paul used in Ephesians chapter 1, when he says, the Father has chosen us, the church, followers of Christ, to forever exist as holy and blameless before him. That was the purpose Basically what Paul's saying is that Christ didn't find us lovely. He made us lovely. Christ didn't find us lovely. He made us lovely. And so husbands, I need to ask you a question. And it's not meant to give you all, make you all prideful or arrogant. But here's the question. Is your wife better because she married you? <laughs> wow. <laughs> You could say that because she's not even here. (laughs) Wow. Sinner got to pray. Wow. Is your wife, again, you don't don't have to respond, but just think. Is your wife better because you married, she married you? Is your wife better physically? Is she better emotionally? Is she better spiritually? See, the purpose of Christ's love was to sanctify the church. To cleanse the church and to present the church in all of her splendor and glory. The purpose of our love towards our wives needs to reflect this. Husbands, God has given us the amazing stewardship of helping our wives become the people Jesus wants them to become. Need you to really feel the weight of that responsibility. Really feel the weight. We have been given the amazing stewardship of helping our wives become the people God wants them to be. That's an amazing privilege. Amen? So, husbands, where is your wife struggling? 
Where is your wife struggling? And how are you stepping in to, to meet her there? Is she struggling with prayer? How are you stepping in to help her with her prayer life? Is she struggling with, with you know, finding time to, to read the word? Are you stepping in to help her organize her, her schedule so she can have plenty adequate time to, to, to spend in God's word? Maybe it's, how, it's, it's, it's you know, she's having difficulty understanding certain parts of scripture. How are you, husbands, standing by her and helping her understand that scripture? So many lazy, passive husbands will say, well, no, just go ask the pastor. Or here's a couple of theology books. I'm pretty sure the answer is in there. It's like instead you... As the head, step in and help your wife. Be a blessing. What burdens is your wife carrying? What burdens is your wife carrying? Is she just overloaded with so much work? How can you be stepping in and helping her? She has young kids. How are you stepping in to help her? She's got these negative thoughts that she's been hearing and she's just in her head just kind of circling and it's just weighing her down. How are you stepping in there to help her and encourage her? Oh, you don't understand. I have, to, I have a thing right now. I got to go meet my buddy and, and then I got my, 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 my hobby that I, I got to be a part of. <laughs> what did Christ do? Christ so loved the church that he died for the church to bless the church. Is your wife better because of you? Have you been a blessing to your wife or have you been a burden to your wife? Paul then moves on, verses 28 to 30, where he's going to reiterate the command, husbands. And again, he's going to show that the spirit-filled husband's pattern of love is, is found in Christ, in verses 28 to 30. Look what he says there. So husbands... Also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Very interesting there. He who loves his own, his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh. No one ever despised, detested his own flesh. Instead, what does he do? But nourishes and cherishes it. The word there, nourish, is the idea of rearing up children, the, the care that's, that's needed in order to, 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 to take care, to raise up a kid from a baby to an adult. I mean, think of that. That's nourishing a child. It's this idea of protection, provision, and then cherishes. Think of a, of a mother hen who's sitting down on her, her eggs and or on her chicks and offering warmth. You can just see the care. This is the kind of care that we have for our bodies. Look at the comparison. Just as Christ also does the church. Why? Because we are members of his body. So men, what do you do when your stomach growls? Feed it. Make me a sandwich. I'm going to make myself a sandwich. I'm going to go get myself a pizza. Something with lots of carbs and grease. No, I'm just playing. To a point. Uh, anyways, um, yeah, what do you do when you're in stomach grounds? You feed it. What do you do when you're thirsty? You drink some water. What happens when you're driving on ice? Hopefully you're not just trying to make skids. No, you're what? Driving on 97? Ice? You're driving really careful. Why? Because you don't want to plow into the next line and hurt yourself. What happens if someone were to come at you and they just start swinging their fists at you? What are you going to do? You're going to pick up your arms and you're going to try to protect yourself. No one has to tell you to do these things. They're just instinctively you do them because it's your body. You're going to protect your body. You're going to take care of your body. The church is Christ's body where he serves as head. And just like we take care of our bodies by providing and protecting them. Jesus provides and protects, nourishes and cherishes the church. And this is the kind of love and care that is to be reflected in our marriage towards our wives. Again, there's, that's a lot of again, heaviness. So wives, if you thought submitting to your husbands was a hard thing, whoo! Your husbands have a huge responsibility which is why you desperately need to be praying for them. Because we're not perfect. We're not perfect. 
but we serve a perfect God. Amen? Paul then moves on to the biblical basis for what he's saying. Verse 31, he's going to recite a a part of of Genesis chapter 2. He says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. It's the idea that before the man was a part of of one family unit with his father and mother, but now he's leaving that family unit and he's now starting his own. You know, so this is, you know, moving away from the house, you know, not having mom and dad give him an allowance anymore, not having mom wash his clothes anymore, you know, getting his butt off of your insurance plan, you know, he's going to become his own man. So he's like, the man shall leave his father and mother and shall join to his wife. This idea of, it's almost like be glued to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. There's a special physical connection between husbands and wives within the covenant of marriage. But Paul also says in 1 Corinthians 6 that there's this a spiritual aspect to this union as well. Wives are part of husbands and husbands are part of wives. It, you, you would not ignore uh, a wound that you just, the, you know, that's getting infected, right? If you have a cut on your arm that's getting infected, you would say, oh, well, too bad arm. You don't do that. If you, your leg is broken, you're like, too bad leg. What are you going to do? You're going to take care of it. If your wife is hurting, guess what? You're going to hurt. Well, how does that work? Because you're not just two individuals. You're one, one flesh. Just as Christ is the head of the body, we are the head of our wives. And as the, like the body is, is, you know, submits to, to Christ, the church is submitting, or the church submits to Christ, wives are submitting to us. We're, we're part of each other. So if your wife is hurting, we hurt. So we're commanded to love our wives as our own bodies because through marriage, that's exactly who they are. They're part of us. They're part of us. And finally, we get to verse 32. This is where Paul's been really leading toward. This is what he's been developing this whole time. He says, this mystery, verse 32, this mystery is great. Now, when Paul um, uses the word mystery, uh, in the first century, especially in Ephesus and the surrounding areas, they would hear the word mystery and they would say, okay, this is something that's hidden and we need to go to a specific temple. We got to go through some you know, specific rituals and, you know, Climb a mountain, and then we'll receive what that mystery is. But whenever Paul brings up the word mystery, he's referring, some, about, he's referring to something that was hidden in the past, but now has been revealed to us now through God's revelation. Again, this is mainly pertaining to, to God's salvation and the benefits and what, what comes in, in, in addition to that salvation he says, this mystery is great. This mystery is, and the word for great is megas. It's like, think of megaphone. It's big. It's incredible. I like one translation of the Bible. It says, this mystery is profound. But what is the mystery? That a husband and wife become one flesh? No, no, no. What, what is the mystery? Look what he says. I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. It's this mystery, this relationship, this union with Christ and his bride is just so profound. From the very beginning, God intended marriage to be a picture of the gospel. Men and women get married to demonstrate to the world that Christ loves and cherishes his bride. Again, marriage was never meant just for our happiness. Does it bring happiness? Oh, sure it does. Was that its ultimate intent? No. Marriage exists to display the glory of Christ's redemptive love for his bride. And because of that, husbands, our marriage, our marriages exist to display the glory of Christ's redemptive love for his bride. Husbands, we are to love our wives in such a way that people can see Christ's love for his church. Wives, you are to affirm the leadership of your husbands in such a way that people can see 
the headship of Christ through the obedience of the church. And then he moves on to verse 33. Nevertheless, this is an interesting word. It, it could also be uh, translated in conclusion. The idea of that word is just like, out of everything that Paul's been saying, this is where he's trying to emphasize right now. Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife, even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. Basically, husbands and wives are to meet each other's deepest need. And this is something scripture attests, attests to, and actually even research confirms. While men appreciate love from their wives, what they deeply need is respect. And while women appreciate respect from their husbands, what they deeply need is love. In fact, there was a, a book written many, many years ago, it actually might be even in our library, um, called Love and Respect. It was based off of this idea. It was actually a pretty, pretty okay book that kind of describes the, the unfortunate cycle of conflict that marriages fall into. You know, when the, the husband is not loving the wife as Christ loved the church, then the wife responds by not respecting her husband. So the husband, because she's not, he's not being respected by his wife, further doesn't love his wife, and then the wife is not being loved still, and doesn't respect the husband, and it just goes on and on. It's this circle, this crazy cycle of conflict. It's really silly. If the husband would just love his wife the way God intended, and if the wife would just submit to uh, and respect her, her husband, then that conflict would be resolved. When you think about it, husbands, because we are the head, if you find yourself in this kind of cycle, since we're the head, it really has to start with us. It should start with us and continue with us. Don't just be lazy and passive and just think, oh, I'll just wait for my wife to change things. No, you change. You love. God's glory is at stake in our marriages. I don't know if you've noticed that in this passage. It's, a way, again, very weighty passage. God's glory is at stake. I find it very interesting that Paul brings, places this discussion right up against uh, his discussion on spiritual warfare. Because you understand Satan hates God, hates anything that glorifies God, and if he can attempt to, to do something to try to uh, remove glory from God, he's going to do it. And so what do we see him doing? He's attacking the home. He's attacking the home. Uh, there's a, a statistic and says that 50, and some would even say upwards to 70% of all marriages end in divorce. 50 to play, probably close to 70% of all marriages end in divorce. You think the enemy wants to destroy that marriage? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. 50, 50 to 70%. The funny thing is, no one is trying to fix it. 50 to 70% of marriages, of all marriages, are ending a divorce. No one's trying to fix it. In fact, what they're trying to do is make the process even easier, less hassle, less paperwork, more beneficial for those involved. Think about this. If, if Tesla came out with a, a, a style of cars and they sold a bunch of those cars and 50 to 70% of those cars sold break down. What, are the, what would Tesla do? Fix it. Fix it. They wouldn't just say sit on their hands. Well, oh well. Oh well. They try whatever they can to try to fix the situation. So why not for marriage? 
So why not our marriage? Because the reality is in our society, marriage has no weight or significance anymore. In fact, some people would say that marriage is all becoming kind of a novelty. It's just hook up, you know, shack up, whatever they call it. You know, that, 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 that's just marriage, that's just, it's just too much of a hassle, too much paperwork. And if you have to go through an ugly divorce, da, 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 you know, no, might as well. If you love the person and they love you back, just go ahead and live together. Have kids. Who cares? They don't recognize that marriage is a covenant. People just treat it like a contract. You know, a contract is, well, through a contract you negotiate for, the negotiations you make are to benefit you. In a covenant, you live your life for the benefit of the other. You see, that's what, not, our world doesn't see that. Our world doesn't see marriage that way. Marriage must be taken seriously for those who follow Christ because God takes it very seriously. We have to understand that our, um, that our witness to the world in large part will be in the marriages in this church. Think about it. Our witnesses to this community in Lapine in large part will be found in the marriages in this church. Why? Because our marriages are to be a picture of Christ's love for his church. A picture to the world of Christ's love for his church. You see, our marriages will either point people to Jesus or they won't. We have to understand that marriage is too important and too significant to think we can do this all on our own because we can't. I mean, it's foolish. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Are you kidding me? Wives, submit to your husbands. Are you kidding me? It's hard. We need help. And praise God, he has given us help. He has given us his word, his eternal word. This is all true. And it's everything we need to live a godly life, to have a godly marriage. It's all right here. We just need to open it. We just need to study it. Praise God for that. We need the help. I mean, there's like every month there's a new book on how to have a better marriage. This is all you need. The other books may have some things that are maybe helpful, but most of it's going to be worldly knowledge, worldly wisdom, which God says is foolishness. Right? This is godly. This is eternal. God has given us his word. And not only that, but God has also given us the Holy Spirit to empower us. Love your wives of Christ, love the church. I need help. Okay, here's the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. I need help. Here's the Holy Spirit. Thank you, God. Because I couldn't do it by myself. I need help. I love this quote from uh, an old pastor was not a perfect pastor by any stretch, but he was a, a man who was faithful. He served uh, for many years in, in, in England. But it's, it's in regards to this passage, particularly Christ's love for the church. He says, this love of Christ is the most amazing thing under heaven, if not heaven itself. How often I have said to you that I have, if I had heard that Christ pitied us, I could understand it. If I had heard that Christ had mercy upon us, I could comprehend it. But when it is written that he actually loves us, that is quite another and a much more extraordinary thing. Love between mortal and mortal is quite natural and comprehensible, but love between the infinite God and us poor, sinful, finite creatures, though conceivable in one sense, is utterly inconceivable in another. Who can grasp such an idea? Who can fully understand it? especially when it comes uh, in, in this form. He loved me and gave himself for me. This is the miracle of miracles. Husbands, I just want to again, just one last thing. This, what, what, what the kind of love that this pastor is talking about, this is the kind of love we are to have toward our wives. So what men need to do is no more, no more cowardice, no more laziness, 
No more passivity. Husbands need to take their place. Wives need to take their place. The glory of God is at stake. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I want to thank you again for this word. It's, it was long, deep, and uh, Lord, very, very heavy. And so, um, Lord, I, I just pray uh, for the marriages in this room. Lord, um, I think we, all of us would say we desire to uh, have marriages that reflect Jesus's love for the church. The relationship Jesus has with us. Lord, we desire that to be reflected in our relationship. So Lord, but we, we need help. We can't do it on our own. It's impossible for us to do it on our own. And so we ask that you would equip us, that you would encourage us to continue to dive into your word, to really flesh this out, Lord. We, we, I, literally, Lord, we just scratched the surface of how this practically plays out. And I pray, Lord, it's, it's, it's wet the men's appetite to study further. Lord, that they would have a desire to have a good godly marriage. That they would have a desire to love their wives the way you love us. Lord, may you encourage the wives, even in the hard times. Lord, there may be women who are watching this and their husbands are not followers of you or their husbands are in sin and it's really hard to submit. Lord, may you give them grace and peace and may they recognize that their submission to their husband isn't because their husband is worthy. It's because you are worthy and their submission to their husbands is a submission to Christ. May they see that, Lord. May they recognize that they are not alone in how hard it is to follow this. May you put older women in their, in their path to instruct them, to give them wisdom on how to love and respect their husbands. Lord, may Cascade Bible Church be a church filled with strong marriages that reflect you. May we go out into this world as a great witness of the gospel. We pray these things in Jesus' name.